Welcome to the podcast of Grace Crossing Church, where life and faith intersect. Well, this morning, we want to welcome you to the fourth week of Easter as we continue our series, Body of Evidence. As a reminder, uh, Easter is not a single day holiday as we have constructed it here in our Western culture. According to church history and Christian tradition, Easter is actually celebrated over eight Sundays. So it is a 50-day celebration that starts on Resurrection Sunday and goes all the way through Pentecost Sunday, which this year will be on June the 9th. So resurrection is far too big and far too important to be limited to just a 24-hour period of time. So in this series, what we're doing is we are collecting evidence about what is, um, without a doubt, the most significant thing that our world here has ever experienced before and will ever experience again. Um, so there are two really significant aspects of resurrection that I really think are important for us to understand here this morning before we get into our third evidence. The first really important thing is this. At resurrection, Jesus reclaimed his divine privileges. Now, it's really important we understand this because something happened when Jesus took on the form of a human. He literally laid down and gave up the free exercise of his divinity. He didn't cease being God, but he didn't exercise his divine privileges. That's what Philippians chapter 2 tells us. Verses 6 and 7, though he was God, don't miss that, though he was God, he, Jesus, did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. Now, for 33 years, Jesus lived on the earth, and people, uh, his disciples caught a couple of glimpses of what those divine privileges look like when they're fully exercised. When Jesus shows up on a turbulent sea walking on the water, he's giving them a glimpse of what it's like to exercise his divine privileges. When Peter, James, and John are with him on the Mount of Olives and he is transfigured before their very eyes, he takes on a glorified state. They see him in his pre-incarnate state in their presence. Here is Jesus showing them what this is going to look like when he's finally resurrected. And so resurrection was Jesus literally reclaiming what always belonged to him, but he had willingly let go of. The second really important thing at resurrection that happens is that the fullness of God is put on full display in human form. We all of a sudden, for the very first time, see a human body that has actually been transformed in every single way that you can possibly imagine. And here's what is so cool about that story, is that we are told that we as followers of Christ will also one day experience that same resurrection power. 
Now, this was the message of the early church. The message of the early church, if you read in the, in the epistles, in the letters of the New Testament, their message was all about resurrection. Yes, they talked about Jesus was crucified, but they also talked about Jesus is alive. So when they talked about crucifixion, it was past tense. But when they talked about resurrection, it was present tense. Not Jesus was alive, but Jesus is very much alive. And it's so important that we understand that that very promise is actually what they declared at the risk of their own lives. Here's what we read in Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. What were they speaking about? They were speaking about Jesus, who was crucified but is alive. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. Here's the deal. The resurrection was a threatening message. The resurrection remains a threatening message. But you need to understand what it was they were preaching. They didn't simply proclaim Jesus resurrected. They proclaimed Jesus, that in Jesus, the resurrection of the dead is going to take place. Here's what, here's what this verse is actually telling us. This verse is telling us that Jesus was the first to be resurrected, but he won't be the last. There will be others. And every single person that places their faith and trust squarely in Christ are going to one day also experience what Jesus experienced. In other words, he's going to share it with us. Romans chapter 6 actually tells us in plain language that very thing. For if you and we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Here's the reality. At death, you are separated from your body but you are not separated from life. There was a paper-thin veil separating death and life, and Jesus knew it. We don't know it. We don't understand that. It was not opposite sides, or it was not different things uh, completely. It was actually opposite sides of the same thing. One didn't cancel the other out. And so here's what happens. At death, life continues. It just continues in a different form. And one day, the Bible says, not only are we going to be in spirit with him, but one day we are going to experience a bodily resurrection like he experienced. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through 17. Our Lord Jesus told us that when he comes, we won't go up to meet him ahead of his followers who have already died. With a loud command, with the shout of the chief angel and a blast of God's trumpet, the Lord will return from heaven. 
then those who had faith in Christ before they died will be raised to life. Next, all of us who are still alive will be taken up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the sky. From that time on, we will be with the Lord forever. You may be in this auditorium this morning and you have never heard this before in your life. And I want you to know something this morning. This is part of the good news. That your life is not over when you die if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Like there is something that continues in all of our lives beyond this life. But eternal life is given to us in God's presence that not just does our spirit go to be with him immediately, but there's going to come a day that these physical bodies are going to be transformed like Jesus' body was transformed. Talk about mind blower. That will blow your mind. The Lord Jesus told it. Now, in this series, Body of Evidence, we actually are not focusing on his resurrection as much as we are focusing actually on the fact that he's still alive. The question is, what are the evidences that this Jesus, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, the Messiah, who was resurrected to newness of life, what are the evidences that he remains here today, that we can see and experience him? Well, there are two evidences that we've already looked at as we're collecting this body of evidence. The first evidence we've talked about is perhaps the most significant evidence. And that is that the church of Jesus Christ is the evidence that he is still alive. Jesus still has a body here on earth. And each one of you are an individual cell of it. Each of us make up one of the cells that make the body of Christ. This is really punctuated when Paul, who was actually on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus to have disciples and followers of Jesus persecuted, is actually arrested by the appearance of the resurrected Christ who just asks him this question, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting my people, my followers, even my church, but why are you persecuting me? And what Jesus was saying was very clear. He was saying, I still have a body here on earth. And my body, the church, contains the life and the spirit of God. So the first evidence, and it's a compelling one, is that Jesus is here because he has a body here on earth. He left it behind. The second evidence we talked about last weekend is the evidence of unity. Diverse unity. Multicultural. uh, Diverse ethnicities. People who the Bible says from every nation, from every tribe, from every language, and from every region of the world who will stand before God someday and be together in his presence. And the evidence that Jesus is here on earth is that it's happening already. This kind of unity, by the way, is otherworldly. It isn't of this world. This can't be manufactured. Only God can do this by his spirit. It is a reflection of of the very trinity, the triune nature of God, the Godhead three in one in perfect harmony, distinct, unique, 
but together. This morning brings us to a third evidence. And this evidence, I would suggest to you this morning, may in fact be the most compelling evidence in the sense that it is, in the words of Francis Schaeffer, the final apologetic or convincing proof of the Christian faith. I think his words are powerful. The evidence that I want to focus on for the next few minutes is the evidence of love. God is love. Love is not something God does. Love is who God is. Love is the essence and the nature of God. And and this morning, this love that was given to us, that was actually resurrected in in the person of Jesus, this love is actually displayed to us here on the earth that we're experiencing this in an ongoing way. And there are two ways that this love was demonstrated at resurrection that I want to talk about this morning. The first is this. At resurrection, love triumphed over law. Love triumphed over law. In the United States, we have four different categories of law. We have criminal law, civil law, common law, and what are known as statutes. Let me add a fifth in there this morning. Moral law. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of laws that actually govern the behavior of our country. Most of those laws we are unfamiliar with. But here's the reality. Being unfamiliar with a law is absolutely no excuse for violating one. In other words, no one can ever stand before a judge and say, Your Honor, I didn't know. Ignorance is no defense for innocence. No one can ever say, because I didn't know the law, I can't be held responsible for the law. It doesn't work that way, right? The reality is there's a lot of laws that people break. They are not even familiar with the law until they break it. Then all of a sudden they become aware, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. But nobody can ever say and plead ignorance and that be their defense for innocence. So let me ask you a question. How many laws do you think you've broken in your lifetime? How about this? How many laws do you think you've broken in the last year? Let's even reduce it further. How many laws do you think you broke yesterday? Okay. According to Harvard Law Professor and Civil Liberties Attorney Harvey Silvergate, he actually says that the average American has broken three federal laws by the time they reach the dinner table every single day. Now, that's pretty profound. So here's what that means. That means that before you actually sit down for your Mother's Day meal today, 
you've already probably broken at least one federal law. Sorry, moms, you're lawbreakers. And dads, we are too. I mean, this is actually what the scripture teaches, and it's pretty stunning. James chapter 2. The person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as the person who has broken all God's laws. According to Scripture, you could not parse the laws and say, this law was one that isn't significant, so even if I violate it, it's not really a big deal. According to Scripture, when you broke a law, an Old Testament law, one of the governing rules uh, that, that governed that society and that culture, when you broke a law, you became a lawbreaker. So we don't talk about breaking the laws. We, what, what do we say? We say somebody broke the law, right? The law is one unit. And what God actually teaches in Scripture is that every single one of us are lawbreakers. There's none righteous, no, not one. No one's good. Nobody is actually innocent in that sense of the word. But we can't claim ignorance. We're lawbreakers. And, and, and according to Scripture, once you're a lawbreaker, it's punishable by death. Like, like, it's worthy of a death sentence. But something happened at resurrection. Something happened when Jesus reclaimed his divine privileges. And what happened is he said, listen, I in me have fulfilled the requirement of the law. So everything that was required, including death, I've done it. I've taken it all on. The sin of the world is placed on me. I paid for it in myself. And so now Jesus can do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He now can offer us his defense. And his defense becomes our defense. And that's why Romans chapter 8 teaches us this. Really rich teaching here. Verses 1 through 4. There is now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has what? Set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, not in him. See, here's what happens. Jesus becomes condemned so that we would not have to be. That's why he can say there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. This is a big deal for us here this morning. He goes on to say this, verses 31 through 34 in the same chapter. Since God is on our side, who can be against us? So think of yourself right now standing before a judge. No, let's stand before the judge. And we need a defense attorney. Jesus is on our side. He's at our table. He's representing us. It says, God did not spare his own son. He gave him up for us all. Then won't he also freely give us everything else? Who 
can bring any charge against God's chosen ones. God makes us right with himself. Then who can sentence us to death? No one. Christ Jesus is at the right hand of God and is also praying for us. He died. But more than that, he was raised to life. And because he was raised to life, you and I do not have to fear being held in contempt of court. We do not have to fear being found guilty because of our ignorance. All of a sudden, because of Jesus Christ, we are declared not condemned because of him. That is the triumph of the resurrection of Jesus Christ over law. But there's a second really profound aspect of this that I want you to hear this morning. At resurrection, love conquered hate. Love conquered hate. Love did not just triumph over law, but it also conquered hate. At resurrection, more than a body vacated the tomb. When Jesus Christ rose again, love walked out of the tomb. Love actually was what walked away from that closed place. And and not only does life look death in the eyes, squarely in the eyes, and say, I win, but at resurrection, love looked hatred in the eyes and said, I win. That's what Jesus meant on the cross when he said, it is finished. The word means final. Listen, love always has the last word. Love always wins according to the gospel message. Now, I know that some of you here share my love for Marvel movies. And uh, I'm a big Black Panther fan. We did that at God at the Box Office this past year. But I've been re-watching some of the Marvel movies. And what I didn't realize was how often Wakanda and Vibranium shows up in those movies. Like, I did not remember that Captain America's shield was made of vibranium. Strongest substance known here on earth. And what's so cool about the vibranium that was placed in the suit of the Black Panther is that it actually absorbed all of the evil and all of the hatred and all of the weapons and all of the attack, and it actually made the suit stronger. What Jesus Christ did at resurrection was he took all of the hatred that was placed upon him, and when he came out of that tomb and the light of his presence shined, love looked hate square in the eyes and said, I win. I am overcoming all of the hatred of this world by my love. You know, Paul goes on actually, and I love the way he captures this in this same chapter in Romans chapter 8. Look at verse number 35. Who can separate us from Christ's love? Can trouble or hard times or harm or hunger, can nakedness or danger or war? And here's the answer. Verses 37 through 39. No. 
In all of these things, we are more than winners. We owe it all to Christ who has loved us. I'm absolutely sure that not even death or life can separate us from God's love. Not even angels or demons, the present or the future, or any powers can separate us. Not even the highest places or the lowest or anything else in all creation can separate us. Nothing at all can ever separate us from God's love. That's because of what Christ Jesus, our Lord, has done. Just look at the number of times the word separate appears. When Jesus was crucified, he was separated. But when he erupted forth from the tomb, when resurrection power filled his body and he came back to life, we were no longer separated. Not only was he not separated from us, but we no longer have been separated from him. So it doesn't make a difference. You can put anything else you want in here. You can list whatever your greatest failure is, whatever your greatest disappointment in life is. You can put there your greatest fears. You can put the behaviors that still disgust you that you still struggle with those besetting sin that still manifests itself in your life. Listen, when God came out of the tomb, love walked forth. And that love that walked forth says that we are free. There's no condemnation. We are set free from every, not just the law, but from hatred that would try to separate us from God's love. And the question is this this morning, how do people experience this love? How did you experience God's love? I think most of us here this morning would say, I experienced God's love through that person. Like that individual did something for me. They said something for me. They, they came to me. They came to my defense. They were my advocate. That person prayed for me. That person was generous to me. Y- you and I could, could put a face in the answer to that question this morning. Because the reality is this. There's only one way to substantiate God's love for others, especially people who hate. And that is that they have to experience it in us. The only way that hatred can be dispelled in this life is if people who choose hate actually see us choosing love over hate. Seeing us choosing grace over law. Watching us actually err on the side of where Jesus erred. Because Jesus Christ burst forth to conquer hatred. So on May the 25th, I shared this Monday night at one prayer. But I want to make sure this morning that as a body, um, you know about this and, be, and can be praying into this. But on May the 25th, there is a white supremacy group that is uh, planning to come here to our city, to Dayton, to Courthouse Square. They are from Indiana, the organization. Uh, they likely have come by way of some sort of invitation from a, a group here. Uh, in this community, and they've got the legal permit to, to have a white supremacist rally downtown Dayton. And there's a number of different responses uh, from different groups uh, here in our city. But, but I want to say something this morning that I think is really important as we close. 
I think there are two appropriate responses for us at Grace Crossing Church. The first one is this. I think the most appropriate response is for us to pray. I think that this is not a battle against people because that's not who we wrestle against, the Bible says. It's, against flesh, it's not flesh and blood. It's principalities. It's powers. It's forces of darkness in high places. There is a motivation behind every hate group in our world. And that motivation is demonic in nature. It is, it is, it is otherworldly, but it is not of God. And I think one of the greatest responses that we can have is to pray, to pray that God will raise up a standard against the forces of darkness, and to pray that this group disbands, and for somehow and through some set of circumstances is unable to even come here to the city on May the 25th. I believe God can put up a supernatural roadblock of resistance. And I want you to pray about that. But the second thing I want you to think about by way of response is this. That group is not our enemies. We may be their enemies. And I certainly don't stand on the side of where they stand. I'm completely on the other side. But listen, we need to pray and we need to love those who hate. You do not overcome hatred by hatred. It never works that way. That's why the the scripture teaches us everywhere that, listen, do not return evil for evil, but return evil for good. Do not return hatred for hatred, but return hatred for love. That needs to be our response because this is not about flesh and blood. We need to pray and we need to make sure that we do not respond and react in like to those who choose hate. We need to let love be what it was to God. Love always has the last word. Love always wins in the end. 1 Corinthians 13, I'll close with this. Three things will last forever. Three things. That's it. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Jesus, we want our hearts to be surrendered to you. We want to receive what was given to us at the resurrection. And I want to thank you for the living evidence that you are still alive here on this earth because you are love. And so every time we love, we are displaying your presence here on the earth. God, we are most like you when we love. So my prayer today is that you would help us. That in the face of opposition, in the face of hatred, in the face of people who want to condemn, in the face of of all of those who speak evil and speak negativity and speak uh, even pain over others and even the death sentence. Lord, we want to speak life and we want to speak love because that's what you spoke of. And that's exactly what was released in the resurrection. So I pray today, God, that you'll help us to land on the side 
where you are, to be, Lord, at the place that you are, to make sure that our hearts are always moving in your direction, God, that, that, that there's a lot of things that people can find fault with in our lives here on the earth, but, but the one thing that people can't really find fault with in the end is when we love, because when we love, we're like you. So I pray that you'd help us, that even in the face of hatred, to let love be our lead foot. Let us, I pray, appropriate your love in our hearts so that it can be manifest through our lives to those we come in contact with. We thank you and we praise you, Lord, for your presence here this morning. Go with us as we leave and exit this building, but let your presence remain with us, I pray, throughout the day as we gather with family, as we celebrate, and especially as our moms are celebrated. Help them, I pray, to feel loved by you and celebrated by you. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless all of you. Thanks for being here today. Have a great Mother's Day. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Grace Crossing Church, including service times and directions, check us out on the web at www.gracecrossingchurch.net. We hope to see you at one of our upcoming weekend worship gatherings. Have a great day.